Who here, when you're grocery shopping, looks for the longest checkout line that you can possibly get in and then gets in that line so they can wait? Show of hands. Nobody. All right. How about the shortest? Most of us. All right, majority. How many of you walk the, the whole line of registers? Maybe even a couple times to see which one's the shortest so you can get in that one? That's what Cindy does. Or how about if two are kind of the same and you're split between them, you get in it, and then you're like always eyeing the other line. They're like, are they moving faster? Something happens with the cashier or a payment issue, and they have to turn on the light. You're like, ah, why am I in this line? Why is it so slow? Or you even finally get out of that line. You know, you're like, this one's taking forever. I'm getting in this other line. As soon as you do that, your line slows down, and that one speeds up, Right? We have a word for this. It's called impatience. God's working on me in this. If these uh, examples reveal a little bit of who I am sometimes, then sorry about that. But it seems like every line I get in now is that longest line that slows down. So I've just resigned myself to it, accepting it's going to take forever. But why are we so impatient with something as trivial as a grocery checkout line? Like an extra minute or two, it's usually like... It's not even really about the time, though sometimes I think we think it is, but we'll spend a while picking which product we want. We'll check the prices. We'll be reading the labels. We're fine with it as long as it's something that we choose to do and we're good with doing it. Then it's not a big deal. But we just don't like waiting in those lines if we don't have to, if we don't feel like we should. We just don't wait well. We have no patience for things we'd rather not do or go through. So often we grumble a lot of times at people who aren't even at fault for anything that's going on. Or we think, why is this happening to me again? Or we switch lines to try and get out of it. I'm still talking about a grocery line. How much more impatient are we when life is hard? When we're going through actual real trials? when we're suffering, when we're experiencing oppression, a bad situation at work, family difficulty, sickness, pain. How much more impatient are we through those things? James addresses that this morning as he's talking to those in the church who are suffering who in this specific instance, as we saw last week, they're being defrauded and they're actually being condemned in court even though they're innocent. So let's see what James has to say as we read 5 verses 7 to 12. Be patient, therefore, brothers, till the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. 
But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you that you reveal yourself to us in it, and that you tell us how we should live. God, we ask that you would help us this morning as we look at this passage, that your spirit would illuminate to our hearts and our minds, that you would make us more like Christ through this. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So our passage this morning comes right on the heels of James' warning of God's coming judgment against the unrighteous rich that we heard about last week, that those who hoard wealth instead of using it to help others, those who defraud their workers and don't pay them, those who spend their money on opulence and luxury and self-indulgence, or even to use and abuse those who are working for them. Those will come under God's righteous judgment. But even in that warning, there's this hope for the oppressed. Right? That the Lord of hosts, the Lord of armies, hears their cries. That he will ultimately protect them. So now this morning we come to the flip side of that, of how people are to live in the midst of suffering and oppression. We know that God will make things right, that justice will be administered, but what does that mean for the one who's suffering now? For those living through trials, those living through the pain and the heartache of living in this sinful and broken world, what does that mean for me? If God is the one who will punish sins, then what's my role? What am I to do? And James is going to show us this morning that we must live with patient endurance no matter life's trials. He's going to give us two reasons for that. And then he's going to tell us, give us an example of how we do that, especially in the ways that we speak, which has been a big theme in James as he's talked about the tongue. And he's going to alternate back and forth between the reason and the response. So first we're going to see that we must live with patient endurance no matter life's trials because Christ is returning soon to make all things right. And one of the ways we live that out is by not grumbling against one another. Then we're going to see that we must live with patient endurance no matter life's trials because we've seen examples of the Lord's compassion and mercy. Then one of the ways we live that out is by being honest in doing the things that we say we're going to do. So first, we must live with patient endurance because Christ is returning soon to make all things right. Look with me at verse 7. It says, be patient therefore, brothers. It could be brothers and sisters all four times in this verse. It's inclusive, but it's of the church. Be patient therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. So the therefore refers back, especially to verses 1 to 6, where there's injustice happening, but the Lord of hosts will bring justice. So what are we to do? Fight back? Do whatever we can to flip the script, to make it right? To get what's ours? No. James commands them to be patient until Jesus comes back. The thing about patience that it's pretty passive. We always want to do stuff, right? Just be patient. 
wait. It's waiting. It's long-suffering. We don't even like short-suffering. It's long-suffering. Wait in the midst of knowing that the Lord will return. Then James gives us an example in the second half of seven there. He says, See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. So the farmer does his work. He tills the soil. He plants. He does things that farmers do. But can he make the crops grow? No. He has to wait. And he does so patiently. He knows he can't rush it. He knows that it takes time and it takes the rain. Two things he can't control. In Palestine there, the early and the late rains would come in October and then March and April. The first helps germinate the seeds so that they'll grow and the second plumps it up. You need both if you're going to have a good crop. James says, like the farmer waiting for his crops, you also must be patient in the midst of your sufferings. And the farmer knows that the result is precious. That it's worth it. But we don't merely wait. James also says in verse 8, he says, Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Where patience is passive, the call to establish our hearts is a little more active. Not necessarily out in what we do, but it's active within us. It's this same verb is used in Luke 9.51 when Jesus sets or establishes his face toward Jerusalem. When he turns that way, knowing he's heading to the cross, resolving to go there to suffer, to die, to rise again, to redeem his people. It's this resolve, even in the face of difficulty, How do we get that? How do we get that resolve? How do we establish ourselves? The truth of the gospel. By truly believing it. By holding on to it. We can live with patience and resolve in the midst of suffering because we know that this will not last. Because as James said at the beginning of the book, these trials test our faith. So we'll learn to live lives that are utterly devoted to Jesus, the one who loves us, the one who gave his life so that we could live, the one who took our sin upon himself and rose again, defeating death, the one who is coming again to restore all things, to bring justice, to free us from the presence and effects of sin. He will do these things. And if we believe that, if we know it in our hearts, deep down in our bones, then we can have patience now in the midst of suffering because we know what's coming. Because we know that it's precious, that it's worth it. We often have hard enough time waiting in a line. But how can we be patient and establish our hearts in the midst of suffering our tendencies to try to escape it, to get away from the pain. But we'll do almost anything to avoid. 
But if we recognize what James has already said, then by the work of the Spirit in us, then we can be patient. We can wait with resolve, trusting in Christ. He's already said that God is the one who loves us, who is the generous, giving God, who only gives us good and perfect gifts, even if we don't understand it and see it. And that our trials are there to prove and to improve our faith. That they're there to mature us. That they're there leading to us being made perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That those who remain steadfast will be given the crown of life. All that was back in chapter 1 in April. So we talked about it. And God has not abandoned you in the midst of your suffering and your pain. He's with you by His Spirit living in you. And being patient in the midst of suffering doesn't mean that what you're going through is good. Apart from sin, there would be no suffering in this world. But God will use it for your good. It doesn't mean that we have to pretend like things are fine. We can cry out. We heard that last week and God will hear us. We can lament as we sang in our, songs of conf- our song of confession. Lord, from sorrows deep I call. We can cry out to him and he hears us. It doesn't mean that we don't work even to bring justice. We can do that. The farmer plants and tends his crop, but we must recognize that we can't ultimately bring about the change, that God has to work. And we can be patient knowing that he will, that we can live faithfully in our little lives, in our moment in time. Even in our suffering, if there isn't anything that we can necessarily do about it, we can wait patiently. We can endure knowing that Christ is coming back and will make it right. And we can set our eyes upon Him in the midst of it. We can live out our faith and devotion to Him. James says one of the ways that we do that is in the way we speak to and about one another. Look at verse 9. It says, Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. When we're suffering, how easy is it for us to lash out at others? I mean, when I'm hungry, I get a little hangry. <laughs> I have this tendency to be short, to get frustrated a little more easily. I get a little snappy. Often at Allison, even though she didn't do anything. I have to go apologize later after I eat. (laughs) How much more are we like that when we're stressed? When you feel pressure at work, things aren't going as well as you'd like. When your kids are having problems, they're getting into trouble and you don't know what to do. When you're sick or in pain, how much quicker are you to lash out at those around you. When you're frustrated with one thing, so you pounce on whoever's around. And we know it's not really them. 
right? We know that it's something else. They're just easy cannon fodder. They take the brunt of what we say, of whatever's going on in our lives, just because they're there. Often it's those who are closest to us who are there that take it. So James is saying the, it's the unrighteous rich who are, who are oppressing you. They're the ones who are making you suffer, and yet you're grumbling against your brothers and sisters in Christ who didn't do anything to you. They aren't the problem. The problem that we shouldn't lash out at anyway, but we should endure patiently. But yet we punish ones who didn't even cause it. Yet our example for this is Christ, who was reviled and yet did not revile in return, but instead entrusted himself to the judge who judges justly. That when he was crucified, for those who actually were bringing his death, he said, forgive them, for they know not what they do. James says we shouldn't do this so that we wouldn't be judged and we know for those of us who are in Christ, all of your sins, past, present, and future, have been paid for at the cross. Praise God for that. That we have no need to fear God's judgment. That Christ has paid it for us. Yet we also know that when Christ returns, that we will all have to give an account of our lives for even the things that we've said. Something James has been talking about. The words we say, the power it has, the things it can cause. And here he's talking about using the tongue again in a way that causes division in Christ's body. Where we should actually be the ones who are helping one another through suffering. In the midst of it, instead we have a tendency to cause more division by grumbling against one another. Now, there's this question here that's maybe been hanging over all of this, right? Is the coming of the Lord really at hand? Is the judge standing at the door? Because James wrote this, like, almost 2,000 years ago now, and we're still waiting. The people to whom James wrote have all died. <laughs> so is James just wrong? No, he isn't wrong. It's God's word speaking through him. So how do we then understand that? We can't import our own preferences and our own view of time onto God's schedule. 2 Peter 3 is pretty clear on this. He says there are these scoffers, people that are mocking people who are holding to Christ's return. Right? Saying that things are going on in the world like they always have been. The world keeps spinning. You don't know what you're talking about. And Peter says, don't overlook this fact. With the Lord, one day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. And then he says this. He says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promises, as some of you count slowness, but he is patient with you. Not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. 
God is outside of time. God created time. So he's not bound by its strictures as we are. And insofar as it seems like he's delaying, he's only doing so because he actually loves us. Because he's actually being patient with us. Despite our sin, our rejection, and our rebellion against him, he's patient with us. He doesn't want, he wants us to come to repentance, that we would trust in him. And so as you'll hear over and over and over in applications here, God is never calling us to do something that he does not do himself. He calls us to be like him. He's patient as we sin against him. He calls us to be patient even as we're sinned against. And yet he is coming at a moment we do not expect. And there in 2 Peter and then in the Gospels as you read through them, the concern for us, though I think our modern evangelical culture has spent a lot of time focused on the wrong thing here, I think the concern in the Gospels and in 2 Peter there is never to figure out when Jesus is coming back. The concern is always with being prepared for when he does. Which then begs the question, are you prepared for the Lord to return? If you knew Jesus was coming back in a month, are there changes that you would make to your life so you'd be ready I'm not saying quit your job sell your house schedule out your finances so they'll expire on that last day right that was kind of an issue with some of the Thessalonians and uh, he addresses that there so not that but would your conversations with your neighbors your co-workers and your friends change would the things that you spend your free time on change? Would your attitude and the way you respond to suffering change? If so, then you need to actually make those changes. We need to be prepared. He could come back tomorrow. We need to actually live like what we say we believe is true. And if you don't trust in Christ, if you live like it doesn't matter, I implore you to believe on him this morning. He made us for relationship with him. He made us to glorify him and reflect his image in the world. He poured out blessings upon us. He wants us to have a perfect life, a truly good life. And yet we've rejected him. We've rebelled against him. What we call sin. And yet Jesus is the son of God who became man to take what our sin deserves. To give us what God meant for us all along. That we could live perfect lives for all of eternity. And either he takes that judgment on the cross or you will. And you can't just say I'll decide later. You will decide right now. 
you will either trust in him or you will reject him this morning. Trust in him. Confess your sin and believe in him today. And he will save you. He's coming back and when he does, it'll be too late. Don't delay. But we must live with patient endurance because Christ is returning soon to make all things right. Next, we live with patient endurance no matter life's trials because the Lord is compassionate and merciful. Look at me at verses 10 and 11. It says, As an example of suffering and patient, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. We consider those who were steadfast and patient to be blessed despite their suffering, despite the fact that they were suffering unjustly precisely because it was God's call on their life for them. We consider them blessed because they spoke in the name of the Lord. But we have the very Spirit of God living in us. We are truly blessed. And yet how often are we tempted to cry, why me? And cave on our convictions instead of enduring suffering with patience. Can we not see that we're blessed? Despite our suffering, even through our suffering. James says, you have heard of the steadfastness of Job. And you have seen the purpose of the Lord. How the Lord is compassionate and merciful. So if you're familiar with Job, one of the books in the Old Testament. Job loses his children and his possessions. And all in a day. And he falls on the ground and worships God, saying, The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. And then in the next chapter, he loses his health. And his wife says, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. And he says to her, Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive disaster? suffering. Yet he praises the Lord steadfastly through it. If you know the end of Job, the Lord reveals himself to Job and leaves Job speechless. Despite Job's suffering, God's goal was to prove and then improve his faith, as are the trials in our lives. Even though we don't know why they're happening Job has no idea the backstory that we get to read in chapter 1 there. And yet in the midst of them, we must know God's character. That he loves us. That he is compassionate and merciful. And these aren't these detached words. Like we talk about God's compassion and mercy. Like they're these abstract things. Right? Because we get so used to it. But they're not. They're these emotion-filled relational words. The word here for compassionate is the same word as compassionate elsewhere in the Bible. But the only time it's used like this here, it has a prefix on it. 
which is polis, like poly, like many, or much, or very. We have God is very compassionate. God is full of compassion for you. He is merciful. He loves you. He truly cares about you. He's a loving father. How many of us with our children see them go through suffering and hard things and heartache and heartbreak and we're just like, nah, it's fine. None. We love them. We care for them. We want to help. We're with them in it. He cares. He loves us. In the midst of our suffering, he is there. Just because he hasn't brought you out of it doesn't mean he doesn't love you. It doesn't mean he's indifferent. But he's using it in ways that you can't imagine, that you can't see. For your good and for his glory. And he has not left you in the midst of it. And he will set all things right one day. Praise God for that. This brings us to verse 12. There's some debate about why it's here and how it kind of fits and functions. Structurally, it seems to be a clear fit with what we've covered so far. Verses 7 and 8 command patience. Then verse 9 warns against the sin of speech and speaks of the judge being at the door. Then verses 11 and 12 give an example of patience and reiterate God's character there to us. And then verse 12 warns of another sin of speech and speaks of falling under condemnation. So it's kind of a mirror repetition there. So because of this structure, it seems to go here with this passage, closing it out. But it's not super clear why this would be above all. Um, That's a challenge in in understanding this. It could also be a kind of hinge to move on to James's conclusion, where he says, like, the final matter for everything that then follows. So it could be marking the beginning of James' final remarks. But still, it makes sense here. James says, Do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no so that you may not fall under condemnation. If you're familiar with Matthew 5 in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus says something very similar. And I don't think Jesus nor uh, James here are saying that you can't make any oaths at all. Paul makes a couple in the New Testament and That's fine. I think we have some instances where we do that, whether we're testifying in court or taking an oath of office. I think those are fine. But what's behind this or what he's referring to here is this tendency to dishonesty where our word is devalued. What was happening is the people would be swearing, not bad word swearing, but making promises. And when they didn't intend to actually do what they said they were going to do. And so they wouldn't swear by God. Because that would be too serious. So they would swear by heaven or by the earth or by whatever else. And you could swear that and it was less serious if you broke it. It wasn't as big of a deal. And the thought of this is that they're making oaths in the midst of their suffering. Whether they're promising things to the people that are oppressing them. They make promises to get some relief. right, And then don't fulfill it. Or whether they're bartering with God and then not doing what they say. 
But God says in Numbers 30, he says, If a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. That's how we should be speaking. That's how we should be doing what we say we'll do. God cares about the consistency of what we say and then do. And one of the reasons for this is because it matters. Because God is perfectly consistent with what he says and then he does. And praise God for that, that he always does what he promises. That we can still count on his promises even 2,000 years later because he is perfectly faithful to them. And if we're to represent him in the world, then we must be like him. Again, it's us being like our Savior. Us being made like God in whose image we were created. By the work of the Spirit, renewing his image in us. But honesty and a commitment to our word has deteriorated even in our culture where a couple of generations ago, you'd have a handshake agreement that was pretty much binding People said, I said I'm going to do it, so I'm doing it. And now we have contracts that are often written to be broken. I mean, how often do we just check the box on our terms of agreement? We do that. Or how often do we hear people say, even, I swear to God, just as hyperbole. taking his name in vain and then swearing by it and not even keeping it. This ought not be so. Or with our kids, why do we have to promise to do something? Because what we say isn't enough? Because we've said it and failed to do it before? So hold us to it? Some of you don't like to let people down. So you'll say yes whenever they ask about something, even if you plan on backing out later. Right? We need to be honest. On the flip side, some of you have a big case of FOMO and you're hard maybes on everything. Maybe you need to actually commit to things, to say it and then do it. Or maybe we barter with God. God, if you'll help me get this new job, I'll do X, Y, Z. If I can have this, if you will heal me, I'll do whatever. I mean, we have the story of Martin Luther, right, on the road. We barter with God. Why do we do that? Because we forget that he actually loves us and already wants what's best for us. And that he has us where he has us for a reason. Even in the midst of our suffering. If we're to reflect God in this world, our actions and our words must align. And suffering's not an excuse to cave on that. This life isn't easy, right? it's not a joy ride. 
While there is so much joy and comfort in trusting in Christ and in walking with Him, it doesn't make life easy. It doesn't make life pain-free. I think sometimes that's the view we have of Christianity beforehand and then we're disillusioned to it after. Life continues to be hard, maybe even harder. But we do have a sure hope for eternity. And Jesus told his disciples, he said, in this world you will have tribulation, but take heart, for I've overcome the world. In this life, we will suffer in different ways and to different extents, but we will suffer. But we must endure our suffering with patience, knowing that God cares for us, that he is full of compassion and mercy toward us, and that Christ is coming soon to set all things right.